Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Pat Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. Welcome to episode four of Breaking the Surface. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about the NCAA and about um, sports, particularly college sports. We thought this would be a timely topic because we just finished with March Madness in the last week as of the time that we're recording this. And also because there is a case before the Supreme Court uh, that is going to decide a very important issue about potentially allowing student athletes to receive uh, some different uh, compensation, particularly there's a a debate about salaries, but the Supreme court case really is about allowing students to accept additional educational benefits, things like laptops, instruments, paid internships, and tuition for graduate school. Uh, This uh, debate has brought up a lot of um, ethical and philosophical conversations about the way student athletes are treated, whether they should be entitled to something like salary compensation at the collegiate level. Um, You're getting into issues of disparity between black and white athletes, between male and female athletes. And so it just seemed like a really timely discussion. I'm a huge sports fan. I also know that both Anthony and Taylor are basketball fans. Uh, So I thought this would be a good topic to talk about. Um, I thought maybe to start, I would just ask you guys, how familiar are you with this topic? Or have you heard or thought about this issue of potentially paying student athletes in the NCAA? Yeah, I, I would say that I'm pretty familiar. And I think most of my familiarity actually stems from just the, the scandals that you would see happening with college athletes. And I, I kind of feel like we need to put scandal in quotes because sometimes it's been something as simple as them just signing autographs for a couple of bucks or doing a paid shout out to some little kid for his birthday for $50. And they're getting in trouble for that type of thing. And then there's some more serious things like what, you know, what is happening in terms of schools and their attempts to get some of these top players. And so all these scandals that we see happen, uh, they beg the question, like, why aren't we just paying athletes? And then that's when you see people have opinions one way or the other of, well, they're, they're already getting a, you know, a free ride in some cases. Um, you know, they're on TV and, and there's all these different differing opinions regarding that. But for me, it's always kind of stemmed from scandals that have taken place. And can those be prevented by just treating athletes more fair? How about you, Anthony? What have you encountered about the topic of anything? I don't have a strong opinion about it. A number of years ago, I had looked into it and done some reading on it and felt like I could probably be swayed both directions, depending on the argument that I heard. Um, I kind of like the idea of them being paid just in the sense that it seems like they just make them employees of the college, which lots of people can work for the college and get paid from the college in different areas, just not sports. And so perhaps if it's seen as something like that, it would make sense to me. Uh, on the other hand, Taylor, I'm not sure I agree that it would do away with scandal. Um, I think it might help, but so I'm an Ohio State fan. 
Unfortunately, everybody scandal boo. university. <laughs> I, I know you're exactly right. Like they weren't just getting fifty dollars shout outs; they were getting whole car dealerships at one point. <laughs> and I'm not sure that would getting paid from the college would change because that kind of stuff was coming from boosters, and that that would still have to be dealt with because I think you would still run into the problem of colleges with a huge alumni base and a lot of deep pockets would simply draw the better athletes. So there would have to be a way to still shoot for parity. Otherwise you're going to see a real discrepancy of what colleges can do. And I think both of you have watched the NCAA tournament and mm-hmm. I love how competitive it is because even small colleges can take the big boys to the wire. And I would be really concerned if there was a change that would do away with something like that. Mm-hmm. I Can I just jump in? So I think, um, I do agree with you in the sense that these larger colleges that have big boosters are always going to have some distinct advantage because they can dip into these sometimes sketchy pools of money. Um, but I was just thinking more for, for something where and we'll talk about this, but why, I, it doesn't make no sense to me why an athlete cannot just sell their autograph mm-hmm. and pocket some of that money. And so those are some of the things that they're, they're deemed scandals, but personally I would not call it that. I would just call it unfair treatment. Someone can't, make money off their likeness, but we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's really two issues, right? There's the legal issue and then there's the moral issue. So the legal issue, which is before the Supreme court has to do with antitrust law. And I think just having researched this issue a lot and just from some of the legal analysis I've seen, I, I think the NCAA is fighting an uphill battle and I think they might lose this particular Supreme court case because they the law seems pretty clear about this past Supreme court ruling seem pretty clear. What they're trying to argue essentially is that they are not subject to antitrust laws because they have a unique situation. They are an amateur sport. So they're asking the Supreme court for special consideration because of the amateur nature of their sport, that they don't think they should be subject to these antitrust laws that normally govern business. So I think the problem, and this was has already come up in some of the comments from the justices on the Supreme Court, is that can you really argue that the NCAA is an amateur sport when it's raking in over a billion dollars a year and over 25 coaches are making more than a million dollars each in salary? So everyone is hugely profiting from this big business of the NCAA, except for the participants and the athletes. So mm-hmm. I think they're going to have an uphill battle. So here's Brett Kavanaugh, justice on the Supreme court, talking the New York times saying to pay no salaries to the workers who are making the schools billions of dollars on the theory that consumers want the schools to pay their workers. Nothing is an entirely circular and even somewhat disturbing argument. So the NCAA has tried to say the fans at home, us, me, Taylor, Anthony, as sports fans, we wouldn't enjoy March madness as much if we knew the students were getting paid. And I'm really curious what you think about the argument, because I wouldn't have a problem with that. And actually, when we get into the moral side of this, I would actually find it ethically more comforting. It's also a hard argument to make because athletes do receive some forms of compensation. They typically receive scholarships um, and other educational related expenses. So the Supreme Court has noted that, too, and said you can't say they're not making anything because they're getting some compensation. What the NCAA is just arguing is what kind of compensation is okay and not. I, I kind of do feel, and, and this might sound hypocritical after and it's already become kind of clear what my stance is on this, but it does kind of worry me that the, the purity and the sanctity of something like college sports um, could be compromised. Now, 
when I, when I say that, I guess I also have to remind myself that there are, there is dirty business that's already taking place that is trying to undermine this purity and sanctity of these uh, 18 to 20 year old kids going and giving their hearts for March Madness. And that looks like boosters and it looks like uh, coaches that, um, you know, are getting tangled up in these webs of, of illegally paying players in order to get them to come to their schools. And that's stuff that the FBI has already been involved in pretty heavily. And we see coaches not really get punished in the way that maybe they should. And the coaches are the ones that have this, this freedom to move from school to school without uh, having to sit out or a year of coaching. Whereas players um, up until some recent rule changes have had to wait a year after they transfer to play for that school. And so there, to me, I think there's already things at play that are undermining a bit of this purity and the sanctity. And if I was an 18 year old kid that really was allowing the university to bring in millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, like if we're talking about the high end athletes, and I know that that's the way that the conversation is going to trend. If we're talking about a Zion Williamson, it is absurd. It is almost hard to even measure the amount of money that he brought to that program and brought to the NCAA with TV deals. And everybody is tuning into these games that he's on. Plus the and, recruitment, often yes. a, a hugely popular student athlete can like Michael Jordan can bring students to Chapel Hill or what, you yep. know, they can be a recruiting tool for mm-hmm. the school itself. Yeah. So I don't really necessarily, as I'm thinking through this more, I don't think it's a good enough argument to say if we start paying players that it's going to undermine this, this precious sport that we have. Um, I don't think that's a good enough reason to, to not pay these student athletes what they deserve because they are bringing in so much money. It hasn't taken away my enjoyment of sports where there are professional athletes. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, and, and it seems to be that the NCAA is just hung up on this distinction between pro and amateur sports because their legal defense rests on it. But I don't see that practically. I just don't know that experientially as a fan, it would impact me in any way to know that the students were getting some kind of stipend or salary. Right. And I do want to mention too, because I'm familiar with the NBA and that there's been some recent changes the last couple of years with that. So the NBA has something called the Players Association and the Players Association uh, works, I don't want to say alongside, but essentially they spend a lot of time debating the owners and trying to come up with deals that are best for the owners of those NBA teams, as well as for the players. And part of their discussions involve when do players become eligible to enter for the NBA draft? And it used to be directly out of high school. You could. And then they, they put a stop to that where it was at least one year spent in college. And that's why you would see a player like a Zion Williamson even bother going to Duke because he had to. There was no option for him to go right to the pros. That's something that's probably going to be rescinded in the next couple of years. And as much as I enjoy seeing high level players in college basketball, it, it makes no sense to me why someone that is 18 years old can go off and join the military and fight for the country yet they can't go play in the NBA. And I understand the NBA can make um, those rules if they'd like to. But to me, it, it, it's just, it's kind of absurd to think that we're so worried about not getting these players into the pros that that we have to give them one year to come to college I'm before really, they go to the NBA. Sorry, I'm really pu- puzzled by that because it seems in the NBA's benefit to have, you know, charismatic and high-performing players come into their pipeline as soon as possible. So that seems like a agreement that just purely benefits the NCAA. I don't know the how that deal came about, but I don't understand the yeah. logic behind it. So it certainly benefits the NCAA. They don't, I don't think, have much of a say in those conversations, uh, at least officially. 
but where the issue could come up and why some players might even argue for having to spend one year in college is if I'm a 10 to 15 year veteran and I'm kind of on the tail end of my career, teams are going to be very likely to give up my roster spot to a young hotshot that they think might become a star someday. Mm -hmm. And so I could be losing out on millions of dollars of salary because I lose, you know, the 12th spot on this basketball roster to a 19 year old kid that may not even be as good as me, but he might have more potential. But isn't there always going to be a rotating crop, even if you mm -hmm. bump it back a year? Like there's always going to be a 20 year old kid who just finished a year of college that could take your roster spot. I think you're also (laughs) going to get better players into the NBA. So you'd be paying more initial rookie salary for a player with skills. Yeah. I mean, other than like LeBron James, who was just, you know, a physical freak of nature. Most of the guys coming into the league, if they come out of high school, I guess it was Sean Kemp. There's a couple that have kind of done it. But even then, they're pretty raw. I mean, college coaching is simply better than high school coaching, though there are fantastic high school coaches out there. And if you're going to drop, you know, a couple million dollars on a rookie, and now we're just talking basketball, but this is football, this is others. I think it's in the NBA's best interest to have them play in college year or two. They're physically more developed. They've had some good, solid coaching, and they're getting more for their buck, so to speak, mm-hmm. once they hit the NBA. So I, I think it makes sense to me why the NBA does, NBA does it. I'm kind of with you, Taylor, in that it seems arbitrary, though I can understand their reasoning. But with the NBA doing that, and I don't, does the NFL have that kind of thing too? They, they, would, they would require, I think, at least two, if not three years in college. And that one, actually, if you're talking from a, an athletic point of view makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. You do not want to send an 18, even a 19 year old kid kid in against some of those players in the NFL. They will literally get yeah, injured. Break so yeah. in the NFL a player yeah. must be three years out of high school. I mean, so, so that makes yeah, college basically a developmental league, right? right? Yeah. So I wonder if part of the discussion is why shouldn't these pro sports be a part of the solution to this problem? Uh, cause if, if they functionally have a free developmental league, maybe they ought to be investing. If we're going to pay, maybe it's not just up to the colleges. Maybe it's the future employers that ought to be doing something to, to help these programs mm-hmm. along. And I can speak to that. So the NBA does have their developmental league, which is called the G league. And they have just this past year allowed a couple of roster spots, more than a couple of roster spots. They've allowed um, high school players to go, if they don't want to go to college, then they can join a G league team if they make the G league team. And so that is their opportunity to spend time, spend one year in the G league. And then from there, the NBA can decide, Oh, Hey, this player performed pretty well in the G league. Let's draft them. So then they're eligible for the draft after that, where it gets complicated is players are having to decide because you don't make a ton of money in the G league. There's only a couple of guys, the top guys on each G league team that are actually making money that you could live off of. Mm. They're having to decide what's worth it to me. Is it worth it to go into the G league and to make maybe 25 to $30,000 a year for terrible traveling conditions? Like you're, you're going across the country on a bus. Um, Or am I better off because I'm a top player going to a Duke, a North Carolina, a Michigan, a Michigan state and getting to be on ESPN every Saturday. And so that's why um, I think it's cool that they're offering them kind of one additional choice. But the example I want to give uh, for this year is there's a player, uh, Jalen Green, and he would have been a lottery pick in the NBA last year. He decided not to go to college and instead secured a G League roster spot. And each G League has one roster spot 
where they can pay a player $150,000 a year. So that's a huge difference between just making 25,000 and actually, you know, a really good living as a 18, 19 year old. And so he secured one of those spots. And now he's, after having played pretty well in the G league is going to be eligible for the NBA draft and will probably still become a top three pick. So there are things like that in play. Yeah. I think both of the systems that you're describing though, like either a requirement to go to college or a requirement to be in a developmental league before going into the pros. I think for me, the overarching question of this whole podcast is what is actually in the benefit of the athletes and what is in the benefit of the institutions or the teams or the networks or whatever it is. And in this situation, what you're describing, I don't, just as an outsider, I don't see how it's beneficial to the athletes. I could see potential benefits. So, you know, to have some developmental time in college or a lower league before the pressure of the, you know, the pros. However, what it seems to do is provide the NFL and or the NCAA, a, a safe way to gauge a player's talent and ability to perform under pressure, to give them some national stage time and see if they break down or if they're going to be okay mm-hmm. and let them get an experience so that you can kind of pluck them when they're ready and then, and then pay them. But during that sort of developmental time, you know, one year of college, a student's not going to walk away with a college degree. They're just going to spend some time getting better to be a better pro athlete if they're lucky enough to become a pro. They also, during that time, because of the system that we're talking about in the NCAA, they're not getting paid. They could be they could be injured before they ever have the ability to have a pro career. So they could suffer a debilitating long-term injury. They're out. And there's a really dark side of the NCAA, which is they often don't take good care of athletes who have been injured. They just cut their scholarships off. Now you have no college degree, you have injuries and you have no pro career. Like what are your options from there? Mm -hmm. So I think an 18 year old who's as talented as say a LeBron James being able to go directly in the NBA, why shouldn't they be able to monetize their talents in proportion to the risk that they're taking in their sports and not just make money for other people for free while they're at injury risk that entire time. Mm -hmm. So I think that this is really interesting because it's natural for anybody that's having a conversation like this, or even tuning into the conversation to picture those big stars like LeBron James and Zion Williamson's the sure things, right? Well, I think the conversation actually needs to center more around the average you know, student athlete, the ones that aren't guaranteed to be millionaires. And so like with a Zion Williamson coming into college, we thought he would be a lottery pick. We didn't know he was going to be the number one pick until we saw him play. Once we saw him play, it was like, oh yeah, he's, he's the number one pick. And we kind of forget that he did benefit from going to college because he then made himself the top pick. But I'm thinking about some of those other players, whether that's in a less major sport or if you're not the big face, or even if you're a division two or division three athlete, if we're going to discuss that, my brother played division three basketball. And while it was not the same as going to a Michigan state program, they were packing out their, their arena with 3000 people. And, and the players on that team were a staple in that community so much. So I'm fairly certain that if a local car dealership had wanted to do a commercial with my brother, that they would have taken you know, they would have done that. Mm -hmm. Or if some booster is like, Hey, my kid's turning five and he's a huge fan of you. I'll pay 150 bucks to come to his birthday party. That would probably have been a thing, even at a small division three school. And so I think those are the things where it's like, we have to consider players in those smaller divisions and also maybe the lesser known players in these conversations, because they're probably the ones that need it more. 
Yeah. I mean, so just, you know, to put things into context, the NCAA is one of their primary arguments is that, you know, athletes are students and that means they shouldn't get paid. Their compensation is a free education. But I think it is important to keep in mind that the graduation graduation rates for athletes at the top schools, um, I'm quoting some articles here, are 20 to 30 percent lower than non-athletes. And only an estimated one percent of athletes receive a full ride scholarship. So typically in a lot of the division one, like football and basketball, the big programs that you're going to see televised, those athletes are receiving scholarships that cover a majority of their costs. They're still not typically covering things like cost of living um, you know, some of the additional outside of tuition expenses that you incur in college. Um, they're also subjected to very rigorous training and work schedules. They're not allowed to hold jobs outside of being in the student program, um, the athletic program. So the end result is that, uh, athletes disproportionately do not receive college degrees, even with their so-called free rides. They often don't, in fact, have free rides and they're typically recruiting a lot of black athletes from poor and disadvantaged communities. So those athletes are coming in without a lot of household income. They're accumulating debt while they're in school, earning potentially millions of dollars for their athletic program. They're not being paid. If they're injured, their scholarships are year to year, which gives the college the ability to terminate a scholarship on an annual basis if you're not performing or if you're injured. So they have no guarantee of a college degree when they're done. They often have tens of thousands of dollars in in student debt and they could be injured before they ever do something. And of course, we know overall the rate of athletes who actually make it to the pros is very small. So all of those things to me are arguments for potentially some sort of stipend uh, or some sort of compensation. I'm open to talking with you guys about what that could look like. It doesn't necessarily have to be a salary because the salary thing could open a whole can of worms of mm-hmm. like, are you going to pay everyone the same stipend? And that has to include your female softball players, as well as your football players who are on ESPN, yeah. right. or are you going to allow it to be sort of a bidding more situation? And you're going to have schools going crazy with recruitment methods. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I would like to ask you, Anthony, as you, cause I think you're the least on board out of this group. Would that make sense? Sure. Okay. So, um, are, are you at least on board with a player making money off their own likeness, whether that's selling jerseys or. I was just going to say, I wonder if that's kind of a middle ground of sorts is to free up players to, to be entrepreneurial for themselves on their own behalf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, okay. that strikes me as reasonable. One thing you'd have to watch though, cause there's still the potential. So you mentioned someone getting $150 to go to a birthday party. What's to stop a booster from giving someone $10,000 to go to a birthday party. So I think you'd have to still find ways to give oversight so that once again, the schools that are loaded with a donor base and a lot of alumni can't simply, they would once again be outbidding the smaller schools. So I don't think you can get around that they would have to be oversight and that people would still try and find ways to game the system. It's not going to erase corruption, but I, I like the idea of people being able to, to profit. And I'm thinking too, so tell me, Beth, if I'm thinking through this correctly. So yes, college athletes get scholarships, at least many of them do. But then a lot of students get scholarships for other reasons. They might get academic scholarships or whatever. You don't tell the other scholarship recipients, okay, now you can't get uh, you can't get paid by the college for work that you do for the college. So I have a son who's at college right now. He got a nice scholarship that was academic based, but he also uh, he does like maintenance stuff and they pay him. Um they didn't tie that discussion into anything to do with the scholarship. I'm not sure what the difference would be with athletes. 
just because they got a scholarship, it doesn't strike me that they automatically then ought not be allowed to make some kind of income for what they're doing on behalf of the college. And it's really hypocritical, which is, I think for me, difficult about a lot of the NCAA's arguments is I find, I do find them hypocritical. For example, tennis athletes can accept up to $10,000 in prize money prior to college enrollment, but football, basketball, and soccer players can't. Why? There's no logical reason for that. The predominantly black sports at colleges, football and basketball subsidize the primarily white sports, tennis and golf in the NCAA. Um, So you do have this sort of strange dichotomy in how different programs are treated athletically. And it does tend to break down along race lines. So that gets into the more uncomfortable conversation, I think in general, and some students have made this, uh, especially through their legal teams, that they feel like indentured servants. There's something that's not really appealing to have black players performing for free and getting injured and not walking away with college degrees, basically being used up and spit out so that a bunch of white men who run the NCAA can make billions of dollars. That's kind of the optics of it. I'm sure that the reality is more nuanced and complex, but it's not a good look for the NCAA, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. And I was trying to find... I always try to find parallels that if someone that disagrees with me can maybe start to understand where I'm coming from. And so a couple of those parallels would also be like, uh, if you're talking about indentured servitude, you know, uh, cheap labor in the prison system, like, are you okay with that? And if I suspect if you are, then you're probably okay with athletes not getting paid too. But, um, and then the other thing, Anthony, as you had said, where if someone's on an academic scholarship, they can still go get a job or they can um, even work on campus and make a couple of thousand bucks each semester. So I think all the time about these, these tech gurus, these people like a Mark Cuban, I think he was going to Indiana university when he had hit it big. And so essentially he's a millionaire in college and he had decided on his own, like, I'm going to head out. I don't need to be here anymore, which he was right. But um, if he had wanted to, he could have maintained his eligibility to go to that school, despite literally having the, the ability to make billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it, it, that seems to be one of the, the closer parallels would be if you have a major, I'm talking a major big time guaranteed athlete would also be to find some tech wizard that is a millionaire in the waiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just trying to think through, I guess. So what is the, what would be like this, the solution for that? You know, like, so the the big one, and again, this is not the decision that's before the Supreme court, but I think what the NCAA is afraid of is that it's going to open the door to the next lawsuit, which isn't going to be about violins and laptops. It's going to be about salaries. Um, So I think, you know, they're afraid of that kind of slippery slope thing, but what would it look like? I, I, to me, I think that they should be compensated, but I agree that that's probably going to be a very messy process to figure out what that is. Again, we talked about if a school wanted to avoid legal trouble and wanted to pay every athlete, say, I don't know, a $5,000 stipend just for living expenses or things that might cover their cost of living of being in college or whatever it is, you would need to pay the women and men athletic programs equitably. You need to pay the underperforming sports the same as the high performing sports for the college for a smaller college that might wipe out their, you know, financial (laughs) reserve. That's, that's a fair consideration. Um, so if you're going to make it equitable. You have to understand that some colleges don't have the same financial reserves as others, but that's also the case today. I mean, you're not paying students, um, salaries, but you know, if you have a school like Alabama, 
or OSU, they have lavish training facilities. They have highly paid coaches who are known winners. You know, there's other ways of I appreciate you referring to Ohio State coach as a known winner. Uh, That I meant more Alabama, but um, (laughs) (laughs) there's obviously disparities in in the NCAA right now between schools and the way that they recruit students and the amenities that they have to offer students. So that already exists. What I think might be messier and more interesting is like, what if you just had an open salary system where you were actually recruiting students based on like a salary cap for your program? And you mentioned like that in the G League that they have like $150,000 slot. Like, what if you had that different tiers of salary slots? I don't know. It's messy. I just have to acknowledge it's messy, but I think they should get something. Mm -hmm. It's an excellent point. Depending what you do, you really are going to push smaller schools out of any kind of contention on particular on team sports, it might be different with some things like say golf or track where you can isolate individuals, so to speak in their competition. But yeah, I, I would think if you're not really careful, you're going to very quickly create a hierarchy, an artificial hierarchy in teen sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't really have a great answer for that. Like I always have looked at it as I think the starting point has to be allowing players to make money off their image and their likeness. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I don't think we would get anywhere in society if we just looked at every problem was like, it's going to be messy. And I know that's not what you're saying, but it's too messy. (laughs) You know, a fix definitely has to happen, but it's way too messy to deal with. So let's just keep the status quo going. Um, So I think that it's probably very similar to like scholarship limits. So you can't have a, a basketball team where you have 25 scholarships and you just can, can rake in all the best players. There are limits. You can only have 12 or 13 scholarship athletes at a time. So maybe something like a, a breakdown, a dollar by dollar breakdown of, okay, this is your cap, much like pro sports. So if you want to get Zion Williamson, his agent is going to be in talks with the school. He's going to be saying, you know, Zion, he's, he's got an offer from Kansas and he's going to be, he's going to cost you a hundred thousand, um, a semester Mm -hmm. and Duke can say, oh, no problem. Um, we can do a hundred and 125,000. And so then Zion can, can make his decision, but there's also so many other things that schools can offer, like you said. So what are some of those other things that schools can offer? Is it facilities? Is it uh, TV slates? Is it all these other things? And so I think it would force schools to get even more creative and kind of showing like what they can, what they can offer. I think basically the NCAA pushed athletes into a corner to the point that this salary argument came up and they could have avoided it by maybe delivering on some of the promises that they ostensibly offer now. So for example, you could offer students full ride, truly full ride for your guaranteed scholarship so that if you are injured or you stop performing in the athletic program, you still have the ability to finish your education. They could have, you know, medical agreements in place that if you suffer a long-term injury, that your costs are covered for the next 10 years of your life. Or, you know, they could have ways to address the education and medical issues or even the cost of living issues. And I think the compromise that we've all been talking about that Anthony said might be a good middle ground, I agree, is letting them benefit off their own likeness. Those solutions probably would have helped the NCAA avoid this huge fight over mm-hmm. salaries because they've so ridiculously restricted them that now they're angry and understandably, and they're, they're fighting harder. I just want to point out that what some people are hoping is that the Supreme court decision or some sort of congressional action will set a federal consistent standard for this because 
to talk about what we're talking about with images, Florida has passed a law that lets student athletes start benefiting from their images starting this summer. It's the first state in the country to do that. Others like California are already looking at it. They have draft legislation in place. If Florida and California start allowing, you know, you've got some big schools in those two states, their athletes to do licensing and endorsement deals and the other 48 don't, they have a huge recruiting advantage. Mm-hmm. And I would <laughs> think particularly toppings. Florida because yeah. of the tax advantages, right? Right. And, it, and it's Florida. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. having really known, well-known good schools uh, for sports. So that's going to put, that's banned right now by the NCAA. You can't do endorsement deals, but that that law would supersede the NCAA. So I think there's just a lot of hope that there will be some sort of ruling that will make that consistent nationally. And my guess is that that's going to be the compromise is going to go because some states are just saying to hell with it. We're going to do it anyways. And then I think you're going to have to cap what individuals could give. So once yeah. again, you get the multimillionaire who wants his program to benefit. He'll buy 50. Let's just say you'd go, okay, you can't sell a likeness for more than $5,000. Okay. He's going to buy 50 of them. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's got to be a way. Otherwise, once again, you are simply pushing smaller schools into the background and to come back to something you said, Beth, about a lot of different possibilities. I think if there's an insurance component, I think the NCAA ought to be doing it mm-hmm. so rather than individual schools. Cause that can be a lot, you know, one catastrophic injury and you're out a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So I think if the NCAA looks at making insurance available, it ought to be something that the entire system does rather than the burden being carried by one college. And so speaking of that, something else that comes to mind, it's this part of the messiness. Mm -hmm. And like Taylor said, not that it means you wouldn't do it, but my oldest son ran track for two years. I did not realize the wear and tear that track takes on a body Mm. versus someone who plays golf in college. Um, It's just not the same kind of wear and tear. And I wonder if you have to start considering too, if athletes are doing different sports, is there kind of a workman's comp or a hazard pay? that goes with it. Like each year that you do it, you get some kind of additional thing. You're just kind of acknowledging guys, I'm sorry. I know everything hurts. And when you're 50, it's really going to hurt. I mean, if we're trying to look at it through the lens of right compensation and taking care of people who are making you money, there will be a lot of stuff to wade through. Yeah. Especially because I think one of, one of these articles I had been looking at that was talking about Supreme court case to talk about dissections that had happened on uh, deceased former NCAA athletes, particularly football mm-hmm. and almost 0% of them did not have CTE. So it, they're suffering. We know that that's a problem in the NFL. We've seen, you know, there's a whole movie about it, but it's also a problem in college. It starts in college. It could start in high school, <laughs> to be honest with, with the brain damage. But that was just kind of my point earlier is like, you're okay. So now you're going to start accumulating CTE when you're in college, you're not getting paid. And no one's taking care of the injury. And if you don't go on to the pros, you know, later on in life, I mean, it's been shown to have really horrific long-term health effects. And if you're making over a billion dollars a year just for the broadcast rights for NCAA games, you have money to go around. Like insurance pools are built to spread that risk around and not be devastating financially. And that's the kind of stuff that I think that they should be caring about. It's just my frustration with NCAA is I always feel again, like it's not, about the well-being or the benefit of the athletes, which is it propping up the entire system. It's about the financial benefit of those on top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think people would be tricking themselves if they think that the NCAA has a history of really caring about the athletes. <laughs> and I think that there's things that as we talk about what would it look like to 
pay a salary to certain athletes. Um, there's also benefits that for the NCAA to that. So if you think about um, a major program, so let's let's talk about Ohio State football. In some of those bowl games where maybe they don't make the playoff and instead they're in the next tiered bowl game, a lot of their top NFL prospects are choosing to sit out that game. Right. And oh, so if they were having a salary, maybe that that's built into the, the contract mm-hmm. and saying you must play in order to get this yeah. dollar amount. You must play in any bowl game we make as opposed to where you see some players. And I understand it. Why would you, if you're guaranteed to make millions of dollars, risk blowing your knee out in one game that doesn't really do much except bring your money or your school money? Yeah, you're right. And do, like you could do it like the pros and have like a bonus for making it to a championship yep. or to or playing in a championship game. But that's yeah, that's a really good point. You know what's frustrating when you want a bottle of wine, but you're not quite sure what kind. So you try to think outside of the box and go with something creative and unfamiliar. What usually happens is you end up unhappy, having gone so far outside of the box that the liquid washing over your tongue is equivalent in taste to your middle school gym socks. That is not the case with this wine. My wife and I have a couple of local go-to wines that we just know are going to be good. And this is on the top of that list. It's inviting. It's dependable. It's Fishtown White from Good Harbor Winery. Beth and Anthony, you got to step in and finish this ad because I can't keep my lips off the edge of this glass. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have an opposite problem um, that you do, Taylor, which is that I can't discern between any wine and I think it's all great and I'll drink all of it. But I do really like this. I like whites generally. Um, I don't like wine that's too sweet. And this is like nice and tart. Um, I noticed the description says that it talks about bright apple, light floral aromas. And I definitely get that. Like I kind of get that green apple mm-hmm. tartness mm-hmm. to it, which is just like really refreshing and nice. The side of the bottle says it's dry, crisp and refreshing. And maybe I'm just a sucker for good advertising, but I would absolutely describe it that way. Thank you, Good Harbor, for your Fishtown White. And I got to be honest, as a Michigan State fan, why some of this, these recent developments are interesting me. So I don't know if you've heard about Amani Bates, but essentially he's this next generation superstar basketball player and, and big time. So like in the same vein as Kevin Durant, and LeBron James, they're saying even as a junior, if he would have came out of out of high school, he probably would have been the number one pick in the draft. And he is actually considering going to Michigan state next year because rules are in place that he has to be 19 before he he's eligible for the draft. And what's interesting about his case is that he was such a sure thing that no other schools recruited him except Tom Izzo, because they said, there's no way that this kid is ever going to sniff a college campus. He's just going to go pro. Mm. They didn't have the foresight to see that this rule would be in place and that he would actually maybe have to spend a year on a college campus. So Izzo, Thought it was worthwhile to make a call to him and recruit him. He committed to Michigan State, but he still has the option to take one of those previously mentioned G League spots. Mm. So he could very easily obtain one of those spots, make $150,000 a year, and then the next year after that, be the number one pick in the draft as long as he's healthy. What's interesting and why he still may decide to come to Michigan State is if some of these new laws go in place where he can make money off endorsements and his likeness. Because a player that has that ability is almost always going to be better off choosing to go to a high-end program like Michigan State and still get paid possibly tens of millions of dollars by Nike Mm -hmm. or Adidas while they're in college. And he's still getting the shine from a program like Michigan State where he's playing the top schools in the country. He's constantly on national television. 
So he's boosting his resume for the NBA while also getting a major paycheck as opposed to going to the G league could still get those endorsement deals, but he's not going to have the ESPN and the CBS slots on TV. And so it's interesting and I'm watching it closely because I want him to come to Michigan state (laughs) and there's so many things that play. He could decide to go one way. He could decide to go the other way. But I think it's it's fascinating that it kind of butts up against this case that we're seeing in the Supreme Court because he he is having a lot of these options play out in front of him. Like he's going to be able to make a call one way or the other, uh, depending on how this court case goes. So here we have a generational athlete that could in some ways be setting a precedent for all athletes moving forward, depending on how this case plays out. Okay, so how do you think Tom Izzo feels about a one and done athlete? I think that because it's a player of his caliber, it's kind of one of those things of you have to take the risk. Now, I know that that's not typically his style of taking a player like that. He wants someone that he can develop um, that maybe isn't going to be a distraction because he would be such a star player. But for a player like this, and because he's native to Michigan, um, it was something that he has to take a risk on. So I'm in support of it. Yeah. Two things crossed my mind as you were talking other than, what does Tom Izzo think about a, a player who only comes for one year? One is if the player was allowed to make, say, tens of millions of dollars off of endorsement, they might have much more incentive to stay in college. Who wouldn't want to make four final four runs? And if you're still making cash, um, maybe then a potential one and done athlete becomes a four year athlete. That would be the upside. The downside I would see is if he's the only one on the team making that kind of money and Nike's investing millions of dollars in him, there's going to be a ton of pressure for him to get X number of shots, touch the ball, X number of possessions. And I wonder what it does to the cohesion of a college team. I feel like in a professional setting, it's a little different. They've all had their agents and they've gone through the process and they, you kind of establish a pecking order in the NBA. But I do wonder if that would not disrupt the camaraderie of the college experience, just because you're going to see vast disparities like that. Yeah. Even if there's not the pressure for him to be in every play or have a certain amount of minutes of playing time, there's certainly the behind the scenes, like you said, separation of like someone who's like a superstar and the resentment that might build among other players on the team. But I will say though, that, that, um, for me, the closest, the, the slavery sort of comparison, which is a, you know, a harsh comparison, but where it, it does resonate with me is that sort of image ownership of like, whatever you make and produce, we own, it's not yours because that was so common. And I've just been doing a lot of reading about the slavery era. Like the guy who invented Jack Daniels never made any money from it. It was a black guy and everybody who was white made money off his product, but that happened a lot during slavery, black people invented stuff and then their owner said it was theirs and they took credit for Mm. it and they made money off it. So to me, like to not have ownership of your own image or your own performance, I, I do find that difficult to swallow. If I had a Jersey that said Milligan, it wouldn't happen because I'm a woman, but (laughs) if I did, (laughs) I would be enraged that I wasn't getting a portion of that Jersey sale. Like that's me. That is my likeness and image that you're using. So that I do, I think we are on the same ground that, that, that seems to me a step too far. And that might be a reasonable room for compromise. And if the NCAA won't, I think the States are going to make them. Yeah, I'm with you. And I think that you're exactly right in terms of that comparison. So it seems harsh and I kind of wish there was more of like an in-between, but I don't know what other comparison there is to make other than there's people that are 
wildly benefiting one party and they're not really getting their their fair cut. And so I, I think a lot of stuff has to play out in terms of this court case and what they decide and what's going to be allowed. But I can imagine the next 10, 15 years, we could be looking back at this conversation and be like, wow, a lot's changed even since then, as opposed to this system that's currently in place. It's like a hundred year old system where things haven't changed. The NCAA has, has had this, this system in place for like 115 years where players haven't been able to profit in any way. And the NCAA gets rich. And I do think the, I do think the racial justice movement is going to play into this or is already feeding into it because I think for a while, you know, I saw a lot of thinly veiled rhetoric from the NCAA over the year that struck me as pretty racist. Basically you should be grateful that you get a chance to come to college. Like you might not be able to come to college anyways, because a lot of students were from poor backgrounds and didn't do well academically. It's like, we gave you this magical, you know, stairway to the top that you got to come up and you should just be grateful and shut up and do what you're told. And I think the tenor and the conversation in the country has changed where the black community is not putting up with that anymore, understandably and rightfully. And so I think there's a lot more sense of empowerment. There's a lot more thoughtful discussion about what these athletes actually deserve. And there's been serious conversation among athletes about sitting out games, about boycotting the NCAA, you know, doing whatever they have to do to make it clear. Like, I don't think what their asks are unreasonable. I think what has happened is the NCAA for too long didn't deliver on what it promised, even, even the basics. And now, like I said, now this sort of revolt has fomented and they're going to have to have this reckoning of like, what is just for the athletes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't mean every new idea is great, but it almost certainly means some new ideas are pretty good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, I think, I think that's kind of a good way to start to wrap this up. And for people that maybe aren't sure where they land on this stuff, I, I guess I would just start paying attention to, to some of these things. And I often think back to even the um, color commentators for these for these basketball games and some of the rhetoric that they use, if you really pay attention, it's kind of alarming um, in the way that they speak sometimes about these players where it sounds like they're property. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that they're even doing it on purpose. I think it's just because the system has been in place and they're part of that system. And um, it's just fascinating. I mean, I've even seen things where uh, NFL players, they'll tweet something and they'll be like, Hey, when you're doing our, our draft reviews and kind of grading us on our physical attributes and, and telling about our life story, you mind just not mentioning that I had a family member that was shot because that yeah. seems to be these yeah. go-to things where we have these minorities and we like to really paint a picture of them having overcome something. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why, why certain entities like to paint that picture of here's this person that overcomes something that has overcome something is because they, those entities like to think that they played a role in that person having overcome. I something. call it tragedy porn. It's like, yeah, they, they're like, oh, his mother struggled with drug addiction and his uncle killed himself in his garage. But now he has a chance to play for the NCAA because mm-hmm. the white benevolent benefactors have brought him into a new life. It is super racist and it is repeated over and over. I mean, I watch the college and pro drafts and especially on the college level, it's definitely overemphasized. I would just like, you know, when we wrap up for people who might want to think about this more, we didn't even touch on like issues. Like there's a whole dichotomy between how male and female athletes are treated. For me, this is a broader conversation. I love sports, 
but are we like out of control in prioritizing sports over academics on college campuses? Like how much money we put into the programs, the facilities, what we expect of athletes versus non-athletic students. Did you mean to say over-prioritize as a culture? <laughs> as a whole entire culture. And because the culture has become so powerful, then you have not the kind of scandals that uh, Taylor was talking about where a student sells an autograph for 50 bucks, but major sex scandals, abuse, like it's all happening because the system is propping yeah. up athletics. Yeah. I think you're setting the stage for future conversations. Maybe that will be a part two in the future, Great <laughs> but job. there's a lot. I, I love sports, but I also, anything I love, I want to wrestle with the moral implications of loving it. And this is a system that, you know, like any other human system has a lot of flaws in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, this was a great conversation. Uh, Beth, thanks for doing so much research. Yeah, I know we yeah, have some, thank you. some thoughts on this. And um, Amoni Bates, please come to Michigan State. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely going to be listening to this. I think so. He's a future guest. <laughs>